two scriptures today. One uh, is Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 17, and the other Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so thank you for the sacrifice of worshiping the Lord this morning while the Women's World Cup game is on. Um, that's a sports thing that's happening right now. Uh, does anyone know the score? Just a quick FYI. Oh, no one wants to listen. No one wants to hear the score. Okay. Can you just, just give me a little signal if that changes? Thanks. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'll just look back there, back left. Um, hey, so if you're visiting with us this morning, which I imagine we have some visitors here, uh, 4th of July weekend, people in town potentially, um, or even if you're just a local who's checking things out uh, at our church, uh, exploring Uh, who Jesus is and what the Bible says. We're glad you're here, but as a brief uh, point of catch-up and reminder, we are studying this summer uh, a sermon series we're calling The Way of Wisdom. What we're doing is is we're looking at the two of the five books of wisdom in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are two of the most power-packed books of wisdom in the Old Testament, and we're looking at them trying to see what they have to say, not only about all of life, but about different topics that they speak about money and emotions and relationships, and uh, they speak about how to handle conflict, and they speak about all these different things, and what would it look like if we could get a fully orbed picture of wisdom as it relates to different topics uh, that we experience? And so we're hoping that this summer spent in the way of wisdom this summer spent in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, certainly one of the hopes of that is that we would become wise people. That's, that's one of the goals of biblical wisdom, is that we would become wise people. And that's, that's good. That's just not the ultimate end of the book of wisdom. What, what we find out as the Bible continues to reveal truth to us is that, yes, we hope that the Bible's wisdom about different topics makes us wise, But ultimately, where biblical wisdom is trying to lead the reader is to the person of wisdom, which is Jesus. The New Testament calls Jesus, he says, that he has become to us wisdom from God. He is now the embodiment of wisdom. He is now the manifestation of wisdom. And so if we want to learn wisdom, it's not just learning principles about how to handle different situations. It's actually about learning a person. 
that wisdom begins with a relationship, biblically speaking. And so in the way of wisdom, we're hoping the way of wisdom leads us to the person of wisdom, Jesus, this summer. And so this, this morning, we're looking at wisdom, hoping to end with the way of wisdom, Jesus. But we're applying it to the topic this morning of the reality of suffering. That large chunk that Whitney read for us from Ecclesiastes is where we're going to spend most of our time. That wisdom has some things to say to us about the reality of suffering. And this is such a giant step for those of us that want to be wise, those of us that want to grow up and mature as human beings, that if we're going to be a wise people, we've got to start with this step. We've got to deal with reality. That wisdom would call us, it doesn't call us to deal with our fantasy world. It doesn't call us to deal with the way that we wish things had gone and our regrets. It doesn't call us to deal with what we would change about our circumstances. Wisdom calls us to deal with reality. And Ecclesiastes, especially in this passage, is inviting us to deal with the reality as it relates to the reality of suffering. We've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with what is real about suffering Kohelet, that's the name of the author of Ecclesiastes. It's just a, a Hebrew word that means the teacher or the preacher. So you can start calling me Kohelet. But it just mean, it's, just, it's just someone who's going to instruct and inform the listener. So Kohelet, that's the only title we have of the author of Ecclesiastes. Kohelet wants us to deal with the reality of suffering. And this is what he says about the reality of suffering in verse 14 of our Ecclesiastes chapter 8 passage. He says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth, that the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. That word meaningless is repeated all throughout uh, Kohelet's uh, book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's his most repeated phrase. And, and here's what that word means. It's kind of a complicated word. It's a very deep word. Meaningless is how some Bibles translate it. Vanity is how other Bibles translate it. Uh, vapor is how other Bibles translate it. Not like vaping today is not what our understanding should be of vaping or vapor. Uh, but it's, it's a word that means breath. Like this reality that I'm telling you about is like a breath. It, it, it's, it's hard to grab. It's here one minute. It's gone the next. It has no sustenance to it. No one can fully understand this. It's a confounding thing that the reality I'm inviting you into seeing is like a breath. It's like a vapor. It, it's, it's meaningless because you can't understand what it means. One scholar translates that word all throughout the book as, that's absurd, like, it's absurdity that the reality I'm inviting you into seeing, that if you're honest, is all of our realities, it's absurd. At the end of the day, you're going to look at the way things are in the world, and you're just going to go, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't the way I want things to work. This is absurd. And the absurdity here, the, the meaningless thing that he wants us to see about the reality is that the good people suffer and the wicked people prosper. Wicked people get what righteous people deserve, and righteous people get what wicked people deserve. He says, that's absurd. That's the part of reality that wisdom is inviting us into seeing this morning. It's where we need to live if we're going to be wise people. The reality is that we live in a world where good people suffer and die before their time, and wicked people live a long, blessed life. Now, he uses this example of long life for the wicked and short life, early death for the righteous. That's just one example, especially in his context, that it would mean that a long life would be like the top shelf blessing from the heavens if he gives 
gives you a long life. So in his, in his mind, when he's saying wicked people live long and righteous people die young, he's saying that wicked people get blessings and good people get punished and they are getting what the other per- person deserves and that's, that's absurd, but that's reality. Good men die tragically and leave a wife and children behind. Innocent kids have birth defects and complications that will forever alter their reality. Parents who work really, really hard at raising their kids the right way still see them drift away into adulthood. And then parents who don't work hard and who do neglect their children have great relationships with their kids and their kids don't drift away. And then selfish people end up getting married and have great marriages. And people who work really hard on their marriages and who are very kind have awful and very tenuous marriages. And there's this Why is this the way things are? (laughs) That I'm watching that people who have bad business practices, they succeed, they're making more money than I am. I'm watching people who don't do their job well get paid and and get bonuses. And I'm watching other people who are very diligent and work very hard not ever make it. Hello, music industry. (laughs) I'm watching people who are doing their jobs well and are saying, I can't pay the rent but I'm doing my job and it's this, it's this imbalance of the scales. Why is this the way things are? Good people get what the, righteous, what the wicked deserve. Wicked people get what the righteous deserve. And Kohelet says here, that's reality. That if you're gonna live in reality and therefore try to be a wise person, you're gonna have to deal with a world that's like this. That good people get what wicked people deserve and wicked people get what good people deserve. That's reality. But also notice that he's making, ever so subtly, he's making a comment about that reality. He's assessing that reality in our passage. He's making declarations. He's making verdicts. He's making claims about that reality. He's, giving, he's assigning value and meaning to that reality. He says, yes, this is reality. This is how things are. Good people get what wicked people deserve. Wicked people get what good people deserve. And then he says, and that's not fair. And that's not just. And so with this giant billboard, what Kohelet wants us to hear this morning is unjust suffering is a part of life. Do you want to be wise? You got to deal with that. That unjust suffering is a part of life. And what Kohelet is doing here in response to the suffering that he sees is he's attempting to kind of remove himself from it internally and externally, remove himself from the suffering and then make a declaration, make an, as best as he can, make an objective statement about the suffering. He wants to assess it. He wants to give a verdict over it, an evaluation about it. And I would look at all of us and I would say that just about all of us are guilty of this, of this same exact thing, that when we encounter suffering personally or in our sphere right outside of us or even in the world many spheres away from us, when we see suffering, we attempt to remove ourselves to be able to objectively stand above it and make a statement about it from the minorest little um, minutia of, of, of mishappenings to the macro global level tragedies that we see. We step away from it and we make assessments about it. We judge it. We declare verdicts over the suffering that we see and that we experience. And like Kahelet, we normally say things like this, that's not just, that's not fair about the reality that I'm seeing or that I'm experiencing. We begin to play the role of God by deciding who deserves what and who the righteous are and who the unrighteous are. And in so doing, we elevate ourselves and we make ourselves equal with God. 
It's as if we're sitting at the coffee table down across from God himself and we pull out all the evidence from what we've been through, from what we've witnessed, from what our friends have gone through and we put it all on the table and he's our equal now across the coffee table and we say, tell me why this is fair. Tell me why you let this happen and I expect an answer from you. And normally our questions at the coffee table across from God when we are in this place They can start to sound a whole lot like accusations about him. They can start to sound a whole lot like bitterness towards him and towards the reality of unjust suffering in the world. And when we get into that category, we usually start with a very tiny, subtle, powerful bomb of a word. Why? It's, it's, as, it's as harmless and as, and as easily um, stated and rolling off of our tongues this. We say things like this. Why did my sister-in-law get to go on that trip? I don't ever get to go on trips like that. Or why did my best friend have someone have their spouse cheat on them? They don't deserve that. Or we can sometimes just change the why and make it just directly an accusation. Why did you do this to me? Why did you allow this to happen? And who do you think you are that you would allow this to be my reality? And that question why, it's so natural, it's so human, it's so understandable, and here's what wisdom would come alongside of us. Here's what wisdom, according to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, would say to us, that when we begin to slip into the asking of why, wisdom would say, hold on, hold on. Put pause on that question that it's, not, it's, it's trying to warn us about the dangers of that question, not because it's afraid of what we might hear when we ask that question. What wisdom wants to do is to warn us of the dangers of asking that question for ourselves. What does that question reveal about us? What does asking why, what are the giant flashing lights at the intersection of why and our suffering that would say, whoa, it's going to be really dangerous for you if you stay down this path? That's what wisdom is trying to do. Wisdom is trying to stop us and expose in us why we ask why. It's trying to get down underneath our whys and say, hey, let's talk about this because this question is revealing some things about you. And then wisdom doesn't just want to expose us. It doesn't just want to uncover our folly of asking why. It wants to lead us somewhere. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's the journey of the morning. Looking at the dangers of asking why, what asking why uh, reveals about us, and then where wisdom would lead us in our suffering. And so there's two dangers, there's two uh, presumptions or assumptions in the asking of why, humanly speaking. The first is this, quite simply, when we ask why, we're presuming that we could understand the answer to it. See, we get lost in the suffering when pain hits, when the unexpected hits, when the unthinkable happens. We get lost in trying to figure out the, the reasons why it happened. And so we try to ask that question, and then we actually try to answer that question. And so we write storylines, and we, we find conclusions about the why in our suffering and in the suffering out there and the suffering we've been through. And we start asking why, and then when no answers are given that we like, we start filling in the void ourselves. We start trying to assign meaning and to give reasons as to why it happened, and we start imagining God to be this divine school teacher where all that God is concerned with in me is me graduating through his school, and so he's trying to teach me what a fifth grader needs to learn, and so this suffering is coming to be my school teacher because all that God cares about is me learning lessons. 
So we start imagining, well, what's the lesson I need to learn? Maybe God allowed this hard thing because I needed to learn some humility. Or maybe God allowed this hard thing because he's trying to teach me about my idols. And I begin to turn God into a school teacher, and that's who he is. And that lasts for not very long. Because none of those answers make it justifiable that I should still be suffering this way. Great, you want to teach me humility? You could have done it another way. You wanted to expose my idols? Didn't have to do it with that pain. And so I start imagining he's just trying to teach me lessons, and then I don't even like the answers to that question. And so now we're not only hurting from the pain, but we become bitter because we begin accusing him. You're evil. That if you let this happen to me to teach me a lesson, then you're not very kind, you're not very good, and you're certainly not for us. But what we're missing in all of that journey, because that's normally where the momentum takes us when we, when we begin to ask why, what we're missing in that journey is the limitedness, the finiteness of our minds and of our hearts. And that limitedness, being unaware of that limited finiteness of ourselves, actually ends up compounding, like compounding interest, it ends up compounding the pain that we're already in. We begin to believe in our questioning of why, that if we can't come up with a good enough reason to answer that question, then there can't be a good reason. That if I can't imagine a good enough reason, if I can't imagine a good enough answer to my why, then it's impossible that an answer, a good enough answer exists out there. I begin to think I have an infinite imagination and an infinite wisdom and knowledge about the world. Because what, we, what we've done, remember this, is we've set ourselves up as equals with God. So then we begin to assess at the coffee table, remember? We begin to assess all the justifiable reasons why this might have happened. And we begin to go, nope. Nope, not good enough for me, not good enough for me, not good enough for me. And then there's no good reason left on the table because we think if there is no good reason, there can't be a good reason. This is why the end of this passage that was read in Ecclesiastes 8, this is why the end of this passage is such a gut punch. It's why Ecclesiastes is such a gut punch for our entire generation and our culture that, that it, it, has, it does not do pleasantries and it does not mind telling you the truth about you and about the world. And listen to what he says to the reader at the very end of this passage. In light of our questioning of why is there suffering and why is there pain, why do the wicked get what the righteous deserve and why do the righteous get what the wicked deserve, listen to what he says. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they can't really comprehend it. He's saying, hey, there, there's this pursuit that you have of gaining understanding and understanding the answers to the why. Let me just tell you, no one understands it. No one under the sun understands it. He says, there's people that think they're wise and claim to be wise. They don't know. And if I was a cussing preacher, I would say they don't know expletive. They, they don't know why this is happening. They're going to claim they know. They don't know because they're under the sun. That phrase, again, happens all throughout Ecclesiastes, and it is such a painful phrase for our generation. It places us under the sun, meaning you're finite, you're limited, you're not above the sun, you didn't make the sun. You're under the sun. And so your wisdom and your understanding and your knowledge and your ability to comprehend stuff is limited because it's under the sun. And it's placing us where we belong. It's actually inviting us into wisdom because seeing ourselves rightly, placing ourselves beneath the sun is on the path to wisdom because it's seeing us for how we really are. Canadian philosopher James K. Smith 
Actually, he just became an American citizen. Dual citizen, James K. Smith. I know you're concerned about that. Um, you should read everything he's ever written. It'll take you years because it's slow reads. But James K. Smith has written extensively on this idea. He's borrowing a lot from another philosopher named Charles Taylor. But here's what James K. Smith calls exclusive humanism meaning we're one of the first generations in the history of the world to exclusively think that the human ability has every ability necessary to figure the world out. That the credo is, is that if you set your mind to it, you can do it. And the idea is, is that there is no limits to my human ability. It's exclusive humanism. That we worship our abilities and we've brought the transcendent under the sun where we are to where now our abilities is equal with the transcendent. It's exclusive humanism. We've, we've removed this separation, this mysterious gap between the infinite and the finite. And we are in an age that actually believes not only in our right to know everything that God knows because we're his equal, but we've also elevated ourselves into believing not just that we have a right to know those things, that we would have the transcendent ability of understanding all that God understands. Smith writes in one of his books, he says that thinking we're positioned to see everything like God, we now expect an answer to anything that puzzles us, including the problem of evil and suffering. Nothing should be inscrutable to us, so we believe. Like we live in an age where we think if there's an answer out there, I deserve to know it and I'll, I'll have the ability to understand it. There is no gap between the transcendent and the finite. There is no gap between the infinite and me. And so if there's an answer to my question of why, I deserve to know it, and when I hear it, I'll be able to understand it. Do you realize that sitting across the coffee table, go back to that coffee table for just a second, where all the evidence of your suffering and your pain and the world's suffering and the world's pain, all the things you and I ask why about are on the table, and you've been going through the evidence, and then you ask, why did you let this happen? Imagine for a second that the infinite creator began to speak to you and he actually began to entertain your questions of why. And imagine for a second that he began to articulate the ways in which he created and sustains the universe and the way even though sin has entered that he's actually winding all the stories to end in the renewal of all things. He's going to make all things right. Imagine how he talks to you about the, the creation of the stars and the upholding of the scientific universe and the rising and the setting of the sun and how he put everything in his place and he's holding it all together and how your little minute story fits in with the grand story of all of human history. And he begins to explain all that to you from ages past up to the present into the future. Imagine you going, I totally track with everything you're saying. <laughs> Imagine you thinking, oh, this makes sense now. Now that you've given me your perspective, now I can fully grasp what the infinite just tried to explain to me. This is, this is the crescendo moment in, between God and Job in the book of Job. I would, I would encourage you to go read Ecclesiastes 10 times. I'd encourage you to go read James K. Smith when you can find the time. I'd also encourage you to go read Job. But here's how Job goes. Job experiences unspeakable, incomparable suffering. He suffered way more than any of us ever will. And the whole book leading up from, from the, the beginning of the story all the way to chapter 38, Job and his friends, his very unwise, bad friends, are trying to demand that God come answer for why he's let this awful atrocity happen to Job. 
and they begin giving really bad advice to Job and saying some true things about God, but then misapplying it to Job and his world. And there's this arrogance all throughout that Job is demanding that God, the one who let this happen, come and explain himself. Come tell me what you were doing and why you let this happen. And then finally, at the very end of Job's ramblings, God shows up in the final four chapters of the book. And he doesn't answer Job's stated questions of why. He doesn't try to prove himself to Job and and justify what he's done. Job instead receives from God challenges from God. It's kind of hilarious. God is putting Job back under the sun. He's saying, hey, Job, we're not equals. I don't answer to you. And here's what he does. He challenges him. It's, it's sarcastic, which justifies my sarcasm. I love it. God is very sarcastic to Job. He challenges Job, literally. He goes, hey, would you try sustaining the universe for a couple of days? See how that goes? And then he says, oh, can you, can you uphold the created natural order of things? Can you rule over man and beast? I forgot that you could do that, Job. And then he actually, he actually gets so sarcastic, he, he asks Job an infinite question, and he goes, I bet you can answer that because you were there when the world was made, weren't you, Job? No, you weren't. I forgot you weren't there when I created everything from my mouth. I forgot that we're not equals, Job. He goes, surely you can answer because you're ancient of days, aren't you? No, you're not, Job. And he goes on this whole list of bringing Job right back down to his place. And here's how Job responds in Job 42. It's it's harsh for us in this age. It's harsh. But listen to how Job responds after God brings him back under the sun. Listen to how Job responds when God shows back up to put him back in his place. Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Job's essentially saying, I demanded to know things that I could never know. I demanded to have answers in my hands that my hands weren't meant to hold. I demanded that the infinite explain himself to the finite, and I'm finite. And he says, therefore, I have answered things, I have uttered things that I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, too lofty for me, too out of my grasp to attain. I wouldn't understand it even if he spoke it. So I'm reading Lord of the Rings right now. I'm way behind, like 100 years. But I'm, I loved the movies for a long time, and now I'm finally reading the books, and it's blowing my mind. It's amazing. So there's this ring, okay? And this ring uh, is this all-powerful. It, it gives the, the owner and the wearer of the ring dominion over all things and power over all things. And, and Frodo, who's bearing the ring, doesn't want to bear it. He doesn't like that this burden has come to him. And so all throughout, at different stops, up to this point, I don't know where this is going to go. Uh, I'm, I'm just starting Two Towers. But all throughout Fellowship of the Ring, the, the first book, Frodo doesn't like this burden. You know what he keeps doing? He keeps asking all these older, wiser heroes, will you take this ring from me? Will you, get, will you take it from me? But what the wise people know, Gandalf and Aragorn and, and Elrond and Galadriel, how do you say her name? Galadriel? How do you say it? Don't correct me, okay? I'm, 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 I'm preaching. Uh, Galadriel, however you want to say it. You don't know. You weren't there when Tolkien wrote it, okay? You don't know. (laughs) Galadriel, Galadriel, Lady of the Woods. Uh, He's offering the ring to all of these wise heroes. You know what all of them say at different points? No, I can't take that from you because it wouldn't be good in my hands. 
There's a wisdom in them that knows that power is too great for me. I'm finite and that's infinite and I don't need to hold that. There's, there's something about wisdom that knows its own limits and that's what Kahelet is trying to lead us to here. This is wisdom's first word to us, not only as it relates to the reality of suffering in the world, but the asking of why. Because when we begin to de- declare meaning and value and demand that we get answers that we think we can understand, wisdom would come to us and say, you are finite and not infinite. Such knowledge is too wonderful for you, in the words of Job. So that's the first warning of wisdom as it relates to asking why. Here's the second. The second thing that wisdom invites us into seeing as we ask why about our pain Do you think that if you could understand it, it would bring you peace? See, even behind our arrogance of thinking that I could comprehend what the Almighty is doing and I could figure it out and I'm on his level of mental capacity and I've been around since the ancient of days, that's an arrogance level that needs to be repented of. But let's get out of our heads for just a minute and get into our hearts. What's the one thing we want when we're in pain? Comfort. And so what we do in our asking of why is we think on some deep level, and you have the enlightenment partially to blame for this, that we think if I could understand it, explain it, solve it, or figure it out, then it would bring me comfort. Because what I really want when I'm asking why is not just the, the logical, rational answer for it. I really want comfort and peace and rest in the midst of my pain. There's this carrot on a string out in front of us when we're in pain. And it's the carrot of believing that if I got the answers that I wanted, I would be comforted. So in the middle of our pain and suffering, that's going on out there and in here. The question that we need to all ask, especially that wisdom is leading, is leading us to ask, is what is your functional comfort? What do you think will bring you peace? What do you think will bring you comfort when the world's falling apart around you? Because normally when we ask why, we've been trained to believe that if I could understand my suffering, it would bring me peace. And we think that on some deep level, understanding it will bring me the comfort that I long for. If I could understand it, if God would show up and explain why he's doing this, if there were reasons that were articulated to me from God, once I understand it, then I'll be at peace with it. Can you imagine, let's just go with you for a minute that you're at the table across, across from God, same coffee table. He begins explaining it to you. He begins going down all the side roads and the infinite reality and wisdom and knowledge that he's working with and all of his creator, sustainer, redeemer roles. And you are understanding it. We'll give you that for a second. What if he explains it all and you don't like it? Like, what if he explained all of his reasons why? Do you think you would approve of it? That if I could just understand the infinite, I would be at peace. Do you know what would bring you peace? Do you know what will give you comfort in the midst of your pain? Because we believe that if the answers were given, I would then sign off on it. We believe if the answers were given and the reasons were stated, then maybe there would be a justification for my pain and my loss and my sorrow. And here's why that's a dangerous road. Because are you sure about that? What happens if he lists all the reasons and you don't approve of it? What happens if it's still not enough to justify the pain that you've been in? 
Because in our mind, we've, we've decided that understanding why, in understanding why, there would be peace. And we put God on the dock, just like Job. Prove to me, God, you are on trial now. Prove to me that this was justifiable. And really deep down, much like Job, we're bitter because we think we deserve better. So we, des- we declare God to be unjust in his dealings because the answers don't suffice when really what's behind all of that is a desire for peace, is a desire for comfort. And so here's the, the exposure of, here's what, here's what wisdom is wanting to expose, the folly in us. It's, it's, it's two, like we said. The first is that you think you could understand it. And two, that we think if we could understand it, that would bring us peace. That's what wisdom exposes. That's what wisdom warns us away from in our asking of why. But then wisdom also wants to lead us somewhere in our suffering. Where does wisdom in this passage want to lead us? This certainly isn't the only place that wisdom leads us, scripturally speaking. But in this passage, where does wisdom lead us in the midst and in the observation of the reality of suffering in the world? Look again at verse 16 and 17 of Ecclesiastes 8. He says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on the earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. So if you take out that little middle section, uh, that little phrase in the middle of that sentence, listen to it this way. When I applied my mind to know wisdom, I saw all that God has done. Wisdom's direction, wisdom is warning us from asking why and the folly of that. And then in, the, in, his, in, in wisdom's uh, wooing of us, it's leading us down a different path. It would lead us this way. That in the midst of trying to figure out all the answers and all the arrogance and all the folly of that pursuit, wisdom would say, you have to see God and all that he has done. That's where wisdom leads us in the middle of our suffering is to see God and all that he has done. So what has God done? Well, think about this on the space-time continuum. Kohelet is writing this about a thousand years before Jesus arrived. We actually have the gift of being able to ask that same question, what has God done after the coming of the person of Jesus? And to use the language of this very passage, to use the lenses that Kohelet puts on, which is this, that wicked people get what righteous people deserve and righteous people get what wicked people deserve, keep those glasses on for a second. Keep on those glasses of the conundrum of when wicked people get what righteous people deserve and when righteous people get what wicked deserve. Keep those on and look at Jesus. Because nowhere in the history of, of the world Did the righteous get what the wicked deserved more than in the person and work of Jesus? The cross is the ultimate place where the righteous got what the wicked deserved and the wicked in turn got what the righteous one deserved. Do you know that all the self-righteousness you and I feel when we put on those glasses and we say the wicked get what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve and no one could possibly understand that as much as I understand that? Do you know that infinitely more so, God knows exactly what that feels like? That the only truly righteous, the only truly innocent one decided out of his own volition to get what the wicked deserve. 
And then guess what happened on the other side of that act when the truly righteous one decided to get what the wicked deserve? Do you know what happened on the other side of that coin? The wicked get what the righteous one deserves. That you and me get what the truly righteous one deserves instead. And above all the things that the righteous one deserves, he deserved glory and majesty and honor and praise. And then he submitted himself, he plunged himself underneath what the wicked deserve. And then he took us out of that, of that infinite uh, chaos and he brought us into a place of giving us what he deserved. Do you know what he deserved and that now belongs to you more than anything? Is that you have a position in the hands of God that now is your bedrock in the middle of suffering. You now, I now, unshakably belong to him. That the formerly wicked ones belong to the righteous one. That I don't know what's going on in your life, and I don't know where you've been, and I don't know what you've been through, and I don't know what's awaiting you when you walk out here, but I know this, none of that can stop you from belonging to God. Because of what the righteous one has done for you, you belong to him. And he's got you in his grip and the, and the storms and the waves and the chaos are going on all around you. And because of what the righteous one got that the wicked deserved, you now get what the righteous one deserved, which is a place at the table, a place in his hand. You now belong to him. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, I know you all read that often, but listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism starts. A catechism is, this, is a way of teaching doctrine. It's a question and an answer system where a question is asked and then an answer is stated and it's a way to teach entire generations about truth. And listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism written 500 years ago. Listen to its very first question. Listen to this very first question in light of the question we've been talking about this morning. What is your only comfort in life and death? Christian, what is your functional comfort amidst the pain? What is in the middle of the sorrow what is, when all the questions of why are swirling, what's the only thing, that's what it says, what is your only comfort? What's the only thing that can bring you peace? What's the only thing that can bring you rest? What's the only thing that can bring you comfort amidst life's suffering? And listen to the first line of this answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only comfort in life and death? That you are not your own, but you belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, what is your ultimate comfort in a world and a life filled with unjust suffering and confounding pain and problems that you don't have answers to? It's not only that Jesus knows what it's like to be the victim of unjust suffering. It's that because of his unjust suffering, you now belong to him. My comfort, my joy, my peace comes from my belonging to him, not my understanding of the world. Your comfort doesn't come from understanding, it comes from belonging. And because the righteous one suffered unjustly, you will always belong to him. That we don't have a God who's unable to sympathize with our weakness and our suffering because he knows this absurd mystery of unjust suffering. He knows it more than you do. But not only is he able to sympathize with you, he says, now you belong to me. You will never be alone in your suffering. I will be with you because you belong to me. 
That's what wisdom tells us to focus on. I applied my mind to know wisdom, Kohelet says, and it led me to see all that God has done. And what has God done? Ultimately, in the person of Jesus, he has made me belong to him. He has never promised me that I will understand what I'm going through. He has promised me that I will always belong to him. My comfort comes from belonging, not from understanding. That's what wisdom tells us to do. So a few times in scripture, that there's that little phrase that I referenced in Job, where Job is humbly under the sun saying, my, my mind uttered questions that, that I couldn't understand. And he says, for such knowledge is too wonderful for me. There's only a couple times in scripture that that little phrase, too wonderful for me, is used. And just about every time it's used in the Old Testament, uh, it's used to express just what Job expresses, that there's this, there's this infinite wisdom, there's this infinite loftiness, there's this infiniteness of the Almighty that is too wonderful for me to understand. And we read it in our call to worship. When Joseph called us to worship from Isaiah 55, it says, God's thoughts are not your thoughts. How far above the heavens are your thoughts? Like, you're, you're above me. And the, the Old Testament writers would say over and over again that, that, that such knowledge is too wonderful for you, meaning it's, it, it can't be attained or grasped or understood. But there's one little peculiar, peculiar place where that phrase is used, and it's not talking about God's knowledge and God's wisdom that's too wonderful for us. There's something else that the Old Testament says is too wonderful for us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist is singing out and he's singing about the wisdom of God and the thoughts of God and the ways of God. But then he gets to this place where he says, there's something else that's too wonderful for me. It's your heart towards me. He says, God, you come before me and you come around me, you come behind me, you come around me. He says, from all sides, you hem me in with your hands. From all sides, you're holding me, meaning you've got me. And he says, such, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That there's this unattainable grasp of how much God adores you and how much God has got you. And yes, his ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts and that's too wonderful for you. But you know what else is too wonderful for you? How much you belong to him in the middle of you not understanding all that's going on. Your comfort is not based on you understanding but on you belonging. That he's hemmed you in from all sides. He goes in front of you, comes behind you. From all around you, he hems you in. That because the righteous one suffered for you, now, Christian, when you face life or death, you belong, body and soul, to your precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And such knowledge is too wonderful for us. Let's pray. Creator God, uh, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And there are things too lofty for us that we have no business demanding and dealing with. And so bring us back under the sun. Rescue us from our exclusive humanism that is demanded to know and believed we could understand all that you've done. Gently humble us, we pray, by making us and putting us back in our right size. 
But, but more than that, Father, um, hear the cries of your kids. Hear the cries of those who are in pain who don't understand it. Hear the cries of those who want answers but won't get it. And save us not just from seeking comfort in the, right, in the wrong places, but lead us to where comfort can only be found, that we belong to you. Would you make that palpable this morning, that we would even dare to ask, would you make it experiential for us this morning, that we would taste and see how much our Savior has done to cause us to belong to him. Guide us now with wisdom as we come to your table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.